0: 2 Samuel 9, beginning in verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him. And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And when the king, the king said to him, Well, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. that you should show regard for such a dead dog as I. You may be seated, kids. You guys can meet your teachers in the foyer. As the kids are leaving, I want to ask you, if you would, to turn to, to your right for a moment to the book of Isaiah. I want to look at something in Isaiah before we get back into our text today in Second Samuel. I'm going to ask you to go to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5. We live in a very interesting time in history, particularly as we look back over the last three years, the world in which we live in has become more inverted and more upside down. In my lifetime, I have not seen the pace in which things have become this way in this upside-down course in which we have arrived. What was once firm in our culture, and even once firm in belief in most churches, conservative churches, seems a little shaky today because of things that have been allowed to creep in into the culture as well as into the church. Some of these common ideas and beliefs and affirmation um, are not common anymore, and there's been a big shift that has come to that. It seems, I don't know how you look at it, it seems as if common sense is a foreign idea today. Reasonable logic about things um, seems to have been thrown away. Biological science is ignored all around us um, for any kind of ideology, and it just seems to continue to be this way. It's not new. These things have been around for a long time, and they were among the people of God. Isaiah 6 is one of the great texts that Christians have gone back to in looking at the Old Testament for us to get an idea of who God is. So Isaiah 6 is this beautiful picture of of Isaiah being able to see the throne room in heaven. He's listening to and seeing the angels worship the Lord, calling and affirming the holiness of God. The Godhead is talking to one another, who's going to go for us? And Isaiah says, well, I I will, I will go for you. But before you get to this, this great text in Isaiah chapter six, you have to deal with Isaiah chapter five. If you're studying the book of Isaiah and he's dealing with the reality that is happening in the midst of, of Israel and particularly Judah. So I want to touch on this today because what we're going to look at today in 2 Samuel 9 is going to help give us an anchor. In a world that's been inverted and turned upside down, we need certain anchors to help guide us in the midst of that. So if you would follow along with me beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah 5. And I want to set the stage because Isaiah 5 is the world In which we live in today. So let me sing for my beloved. My love song concerning his vineyard. His vineyard is Israel. The house of Israel. He'll talk about that in a moment. He says my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it. And cleared it of stones. And planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain They rain no rain upon it. Now he gives some explanation in seven. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And as God looked at his vineyard, the last part of verse seven says, he was looking for it to be a place of justice. But behold, he just saw bloodshed. He looked for it to be a place of righteousness, be, behold, there was just an outcry from the land. So I want to touch on this for a moment and before we get into our text today, God had done all of this great work, verse one and two tells us, to make a people that he would uniquely love. They would be marked by him. They would be a light shining on a hill to the nation's to know who God is, they were to be an example of walking with God and and expressing what it was like to know God and walk with Him and be God's unique possession. And so He planted them, He did the work. And yet as He did the work, they became not grapes that would be good to eat, they became wild, they did their own thing. They turned out away because of their rebellion and sin. And so the people of Judah, verse 3 says, he's asked them, will you take a look of discernment with me? God asked them, look between me and my vineyard and the work that I did in the vineyard. I planted it. I did the work. And so take a look at what I have done and and how things have turned out. And he tells us in verse 4, he said, I did everything necessary to make this nation thrive. I blessed this nation. I gave them a word They were my covenant people. I made a covenant with them that I would be faithful to them. I gave them everything that was necessary for them to thrive as a nation and as a people, as families, as cities, as tribes, and my people. I gave them the tender care of me being God and them being my special people. But they didn't want that. And the history of Israel in the Old Testament was that. They were more rebellious than they were ever good fighting and becoming wild grapes and doing their own thing and so God tells them we've been looking through that this year and looking at last year and then beginning into this year as well at these Old Testament prophets speaking to the people of God about what had become of their faith and their relationship with him and so God tells them listen I'm going to remove your hedge of protection you want to be on your own? I'm going to turn you over, and you can kind of be on your own, but this is not going to be good. You're going to be invaded. So he removes their hedge. He tells them that they're going to be devoured, and they were. The Assyrians took away the northern kingdom. Ten tribes scattered them. Judah eventually will be taken away to Babylon for 70 years. They are told that he's going to break down the wall, and it will be trampled down, and that is exactly what eventually happened he said i will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed and in the land it's going to be briars and thorns that are going to grow up and i'm also going to command the clouds to not bring rain upon the land so when you get to verse 7 of isaiah 5 god looked at the culture of judah he looked at how they had turned out even though he had done so much work of loving them and caring for them and being patient for them with them And he looked at the culture and he saw that there was no justice to be seen, only bloodshed. What should have been righteousness in the cities and in the streets and in the families, there was none of that. We learned from the Old Testament prophets that the the people were oppressing the other people. Jews oppressing the poor and rejecting them. And so God says, I'm going to bring righteous judgments upon my very people. And the land that had been blessed and the land that he had worked and the land that he had invested in and in given so much, it ended up being wild and doing their own thing. And so God said, okay, I'm going to turn you over. And when, when listen, church, listen to this. Please hear this. When we are turned over to ourselves, we see the result and the fruit of that is what we are seeing in our country today in every facet of the society. Things get turned upside down because this is what the human heart does. There is a darkness that is there. So go down to verse twenty now. I've referred to this multiple times over the last couple of years, but I wanted to look at verse twenty again. Isaiah five twenty. Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness and who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Let's read it again. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is where we are. Things have been inverted. They've been turned upside down and this common sense and and normal logic that had, Marked our country for a long time and the uniqueness of who we are um, in many ways is gone. The good thing about our country is, is that there are people like us all over this nation today that do love God and think that obedience to God is still very, very important. And so I'm grateful for churches like ours that take serious God's revelation of himself and the word and and the faithfulness to the word is important to those churches. But I, I do want to say this that we are living, I believe, under the judgment of God right now. I think we are living deep into Romans chapter 1, where God, where Paul there is describing that there's been a rejection of the Creator instead of people worshiping the Creator, and the Creator being the focus in the eyes of people. It has shifted, and you can see this everywhere. has shifted from Him being the Creator to now people are worshiping the creation. And it's literally everywhere. And it it's permeating every aspect of our society. And not only have we been turned over to ourselves, but the fullness of this judgment comes not just in the initial perversion of sexuality, but in the greater perversion of sexuality that has come where there are unnatural relationships. And at the very end of Romans 1, Paul speaks about there, that when a society begins to applaud this turning upside down of God's standard and of um, the ultimate fruit of worshiping the creation is the approval of things that God is absolutely against, then that place and that people are living under God's judgment. So the question comes then, So what are we to do? I don't know about you, but sometimes I am unbelievably overwhelmed and I don't even want to look at a news program. I don't want anybody to tell me anything because I'm just kind of overwhelmed enough without getting any fresh information. I can see it where I go. So here's what I want to share this morning. And we're going to look at just one particular area. And this is what I want to um, say is this. That when a land and a people are living in a land where God's judgment is upon that, those people need anchors, solid things to hold on to when everything around them is crumbling and changing and has been turned upside down. So today, if this building were to turn upside down, there would be some moments of chaos in the room, of not being able to hold on to anything that's going to be certain. Now, when buildings do that, you know, when it's, when it's tur- totally upside down again, you, you can land somewhere, but it's painful. But I want to suggest something unique about God's kingdom. That though our culture has turned upside down, I am fully convinced that as that is happening, you and I can stand secure even in the midst of the change. And the only way that we can stand secure in the midst of that change is if there are some anchors that we trust in and stand in and embrace that will bring stability to our lives. And so this morning what I want to do is talk about one of those that I think is absolutely critical and it's the kindness of God that is revealed to us in a word called grace. We all say that word. It's a great word with me. I'm going to say one, two, three, and I want you to say grace. And if you say it weak, I'm going to make you do it again. Ready? One, two, three. Grace. Grace is one of the greatest New Testament words. It is rich. It is full. It is powerful. Addie, would you put on the screen the definition? I've got a definition of grace up here, and I want us to... Kind of take a look at it for a moment. Grace is an aspect of God's character and God's nature. John 1.14 tells us that Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. So grace is an aspect of who Christ is. So look at this with me. Grace is a key aspect of God's nature. Where he expresses himself. By extending the unmerited gift of his divine favor to undeserving sinners. Let me just stop there for a moment. For those of us who are in a relationship with Christ and we know we are in a relationship with him. One of the greatest things that could ever happen in our life is this. There was nothing about us that could offer God absolutely anything other than rebellion. The Bible tells us that we were born in sin, that we <clears throat> were separated by God, by our nature, nothing to offer him. But God, who is rich in mercy and so many things, has decided on his own, not because we could offer anything to enhance him, he decided to give his divine favor to undeserving sinners and to pour out his love his mercy his grace and all of this to those who weren't some some weren't even some of us came to faith we have these great stories some of us and I love to hear the stories where we were not even looking for god and then god began to to draw us to jesus and things began to change in our life and then eventually we became to a place of of salvation and coming to know him so look at the definition again grace is a key aspect of god's nature where he expresses himself by extending the unmerited gift of his divine favor to undeserving sinners. And as he does that, watch what happens. This works to bring about our salvation and the continued sanctifying growth of the believer until God faithfully completes the work in his people. So watch this. Beginning of my junior year, give an example from me, that was like two years ago, in my junior year of high school, and God began to draw me in the middle of that year. I began to examine my life, and I began to see this isn't working well, but I continued on the same path, because, by golly, I'm in control of my life, and I'll figure this out, and I can be in control and I can fix this. And I couldn't fix it, but God began to draw me. I wasn't looking for him. I was consistently rejecting him. He began to draw me. I didn't have anything I was offering to God good, but rebellion because that's all that I was doing. But he began to do that. And then on a Sunday night, for the first time, he opened my eyes and I began, and I saw this, that he is holy, he is great, he is good. I'm undeserving of this, and yet God is calling me into a relationship with him... and he extended his divine favor... to my life... an undeserving sinner... and on that Sunday night... in Waco, Texas... I became a follower of Jesus... and from that Sunday night... to this Sunday morning... in April of 2023... he has continued to pour out his grace... upon my life... so before I became a believer... His grace was at work drawing me to Him. When I became a believer on that Sunday night, His grace was all in the room and all upon my life. His grace saved me. Him extending His divine favor upon my life at my salvation. And from that moment on to this Sunday morning, He has continued to pour out His divine favor to shape and mold my life to be more like Him. And eventually, whenever this life is over... Whenever it is over, he will ultimately complete the work that his grace began before I was even a believer. His grace was at work. His grace saved me. His grace is sanctifying me. And his grace will lead me all the way home to be with him. We are never, once we become a believer, to walk away and turn our back on the reality of the truth that anchors us. That God extends his divine favor to undeserving sinners. There's lots of scripture, um, multiple books that Paul wrote that really talk a lot about God's grace. um, But we're not going to look at that one today. We're going to look at a real story. But let me give you a couple of verses that you're familiar with that highlight this favor of God extended to undeserving sinners. This is Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, Paul says, you have been saved. By the divine favor of God to undeserving sinners, because of great, God's great love, we were dead in our trespasses, could not come alive by ourselves, he made us alive together with Christ. And so by that divine favor and work of God, you have been saved. And then Paul says, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Another great one is Romans chapter 5, verse 15. Paul says, but the free gift is not like to trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, speaking about Adam, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of God of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So over and over we could talk about this, but whenever you see the word grace, I want you to remember... Sometimes in church circles, we just throw words around and we don't really fully understand the depth of them. But when we're talking about God's grace, we're talking about His unbelievable, matchless love to extend His favor. Hear this again to, expend, to extend His eternal, sovereign, might, loving, authoritative favor. To people who don't deserve it. And he poured it out. And it's called grace. And it's an amazing reality when we see it. And we know it. And it can anchor our lives in a world that is deeply confused about things that are going on. So all of us are aware of King David in the Old Testament. He was described by God as a man after... God's own heart, and while David really loved the Lord, there were some moments of his life that were not so glamorous. Those affected his own life, his family's life, the nation's life. But there was a time when David was deeply walking with God, and there was a unique moment when he extended, um, uh, he made a choice to extend something to someone that he didn't even know about, didn't know where he was. But he initiated every aspect of it. So he makes this choice that exemplified what we see in Christ in the New Testament, deeply showing the beauty and the depth of God's love in his heart for people to know the favor of God in their lives. And so David did something amazing. And it gives us a foretaste of what this would look like when Jesus would come in the future. David, in some ways, not in all ways, but in some ways is an Old Testament example for us, for us to see what Christ would be like. And the story we're going to dive into now is that David was anointed as a boy to be the next king of Israel. The only issue with that was Israel had a king. Israel had a king named Saul who had a son named Jonathan who was the rightful heir to the throne. So in 1 Samuel chapter 20, we, we're not going to look at it, but I'll just briefly say this to us this morning. Saul's son Jonathan and David were best friends, deeply loved one another. They made a covenant with one another. This covenant that they made with one another of friendship was one of great work of Jonathan, great humility of Jonathan. Jonathan was the rightful heir to take the throne of Israel When his father Saul died. But Jonathan knew that Samuel had anointed David. And was going to protect David. In spite of his father Saul wanting to kill David. He pursued David for years. Saul did wanting to kill David. David spent much of his early days. After being anointed fleeing from Saul. But they made a covenant together. And Jonathan was going to take care of David. And so the stories there of shooting arrows and of uh, Jonathan finding out is his dad angry is he going to continue to try to get to David to kill him and so one day they go out and, and David's hiding in a field and, and Jonathan shoots arrows and he, he sends a young boy out there to get the arrows and, and he's, he and David have set up if I say this, this means that my father wants to kill you and you need to go, you need to flee but if I tell the boy this then it's okay, everything is safe And so he shoots the arrows, he says this to the boy, and the language was, um, you need to go over there further, you need to go further. And when David heard that, he realized that Saul was still after David to kill him, and so David left. Eventually, there's a battle that happens and takes place, and both Saul and Jonathan are both killed in the battle, and, and David will become king over Israel. But this relationship, this covenant between Jonathan and David gets fulfilled once David becomes king. So if you go back to 2 Samuel 9 and we're going to walk through some principles here that I think are important about God's grace and we're going to see this in the life of this guy named Mephibosheth. I don't know why that's not a good American name. Nobody's ever I've never met a Mephibosheth. But uh 20 years have passed since Jonathan has died and Saul has died. David has been on the throne for 20 years. One day, David must have been reflecting on his life. I mean, think about that. 20 years have gone by. And he thinks of his friend Jonathan and how good Jonathan was to him. It must have been a really good memory on that day. For out of it, David remembers the promise that he made to his friend, Jonathan, that he would take care of Jonathan's family. And so he aims 20 years later, guess when you're king, you get busy with stuff and you forget about stuff. And on this day, he remembers, I need to fulfill the vow that I made to my my covenant friend, Jonathan. So to be able to do that, he has to get some information. And so he asks, is there anybody alive from Saul's family? I love what the text says there three times in 2 Samuel 9 in verse 1 in verse 3 and in verse 7, David says three times, I want to show kindness to somebody from Saul's family. It's the key verse in the chapter. Kindness, by the way, is kind of a weak word. I know it's a good word. I know it's a good Bible word, but kindness seems not weighty enough to talk about what God has extended to you and I in grace. Yes, it's kindness. But it's so heavy what God has done to us. It comes from the Hebrew word kindness, chested. It's often translated in the Old Testament as loving kindness. It points to God's loyal, unfailing love for His people. It comes from a Hebrew word meaning stork, the bird. So the Hebrews, if you ever wondered how did the stork get connected to babies being delivered to houses, it goes all the way back to the Jews. Now if you'll go home today and you type in nest of storks, you you will see something not good that the stork does because sometimes the mother stork will throw one of her babies from up high out of the nest, the weaker one, so the other babies. But the Hebrews used to um, talk about this word describing storks. They would build their nests high up there. And if you've ever seen a stork chick, they are the ugliest things on the planet. They are ugly. And the sound they make is not beautiful birds singing in the morning. And so the Jews used to say, God loves us. As the mama stork loves the ugly storklings, whatever they're called. I don't know what they're called. And he loves that way. And it came from this word for stork to eventually this Hebrew word called chesed, which means loving kindness. And the Hebrews would say, that's how God loves us. There is nothing in us to merit or deserve his love. And so grace stems from God's nature. So verse 2. So there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And David said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. Verse 3. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, yes, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. I want you to notice what David says. Is there anyone at all of the house of Saul because of my relationship and covenant with Jonathan, his son, that I could extend kindness to them? He doesn't ask, is there anybody qualified? Is there anybody worthy from the house of Saul? Is there someone that would fit well in the palace life, so then we take our Instagram pictures, we will look really good. This is the king's family. this is what they look like, and everything will look really good. And you can almost hear in Zeba's voice, "Well, yeah, there's a son." But he's kind of marred. He's actually very marred. He's a cripple. Probably wouldn't look good in the palace, David, because you're David. David doesn't say, well, how badly is he crippled? He just said this, go get him and bring him to my presence. God doesn't go, oh, we don't want somebody like that. We can't have them around here. We can't have a cripple, somebody wrestling with life and struggles marred by Things, we can't have that because we've got, to, we've got to put a face together that everything is together. But David just says this, where is this relative? And he sent for him. Listen to this church. Grace doesn't depend upon the recipient's current condition. He's not asking you and I to be perfect. We're not. That's what's amazing about Grace. The divine favor of God being poured out upon undeserving people. And I love what it says here. David wants to show God's kindness, not David's kindness. David had come to know what God's kindness was like. And now he wants to extend it to this relative. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's the first principle. We'll have it on the screen here. Grace. The favor of God to undeserving sinners, drawing us before salvation, saving us at salvation, sanctifying us, working until we get to be with him, seeks us right where we're at and in our current condition. David initiated this relationship with Mephibosheth. God initiates this relationship with you and I, and it's done by his grace. In fact, we cannot and do not come to God in and of ourselves. God seeks us out and finds us where we are at. Jesus himself said this, John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. C.S. Lewis spoke of it this way. He said, I never had the experience of looking for God. It was the other way around. He was the hunter, or so it seemed to me, and I was the deer. God stalked me, took unerring aim, and he fired. And I'm very thankful that this is how the first conscience meeting ever occurred in my life. David sought out Mephibosheth to bless him. King Jesus sought you and I out to pour out his favor upon you and I. Mephibosheth was not trying to get away into the palace. He's a rightful heir in theory. He didn't apply for an in summer internship so that he could kind of get to the palace and see what it's like. And maybe he could talk to David and say, hey, you know, my, my dad, you, you, you and my dad, y'all were bros back in the day. And you know, and and I'm the son and and I've been living out in in Lodabar and, and this is just not the case. David sought him out. He's not even seeking David's favor and it comes to him. He was stuck in his current condition without hope of any kind of change as we all were before our salvation. Let me give you three principles. About God's divine favor, seeking undeserving sinners, where we are at, and in our current condition. First one is simply this: we were damaged by the fall. Now I want you to go back to you're in Second Samuel nine. Go back to chapter four. I'm going to show you a verse in Second Samuel four. Let's find out what happened to Mephibosheth originally. Twice we were told in 9.3 and in 9.13 that Mephibosheth was lame in both feet. And this is what happened. So David, uh, Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. What happened back in the east in those days is that when the new king came to power, he killed all of the old relatives. So 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So here's the picture. News gets to town. Saul's dead. Jonathan's dead. David's king. Nursemaid grabs Mephibosheth. We got to get out of town because all of the family's going to be killed by the new king so that nobody wants to usurp and try to take over the throne. She's running, drops him. Both of his legs break. We don't know if it's up high. We don't know if it's down low. But nobody seems to, because of the time as they are fleeing do anything about resetting his legs and getting things taken care of and so his legs set in the way that they are and he becomes a cripple and he's this way for the next 20 years until david begins to initiate grace toward him mephibosheth's name means he scatters shame and such did his life Become. The spiritual parallel of our life with Mephibosheth, that's a hard word to say, is very similar. Just as he once walked with his father, so humanity once walked with God. But as our first parents chose to rebel and sin came and entered the world and affected everyone, we all suffered by it. And there was a permanent spiritual, crippling, devastating thing that came to humanity that every person is born in sin, separated from God. And nobody can fix this situation. Nobody could fix Mephibosheth's situation. There wasn't modern medicine to be able to do anything about that. He is stuck in the condition that he is. Separated, living far away. No one medically being able to help him. And so here he is, stuck in this situation. Here we were, stuck in our situation, not being able to do anything about the crippling work of sin separating us from God until someone greater than us did something. And he began to extend his grace. So I remind us this morning that we were damaged by the fall and God sought out undeserving sinners. Secondly, The fall made our condition be far from God. Verse 4 said that David is talking to Ziba and he said, so where is he? And Ziba said to the king, well, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Where is Lodabar? Lodabar is where some of you grew up in Hickville, country, in the middle of nowhere where you watch paint dry for fun and Watch tumbleweeds and all those things that are there that are connected to small towns. Lodabar was a hidden village north of Jerusalem on the other side of the Jordan River. Nobody went there ever. Lodabar means pastureless. This was not a beautiful place. So here's crippled Mephibosheth, a rightful heir to the king and throne Son of Jonathan, living in obscurity. He would have remained there his whole life, listen to this, without David seeking. One of the amazing things this morning to consider is this. We would all be lost today in this room, separated from God, if God did not seek us. And begin to draw us. So here he is living out there instead have a, a heart of revenge that David could have rightly had because that was just a common practice in the day is get rid of everyone. He says, no, can you find somebody and I'm not going to be like everybody else and I want to extend friendship and love. So David acting on his promise to his friend, not operating his, his reign based on his feelings and the cultural norms of other kings. And so David takes a risk and says, go get Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, and go get him and bring him to my presence. So Ziba says there, you know, he's in the house of Makir, the son of Amiel. Let me point this out. He's a grown man. Doesn't have his own house. We do find out that he's married, he has, at least has a son, nothing said about his wife, but he does have a son, but he's living in a house that's not even his own. Makir, by the way, where he's staying, the son of Amiel, later showed great loyalty to David, he's staying with a good person. But that's where Mephibosheth is, and that's where we were when God found us. You hear that this morning? Everybody in the room this morning is either living in Lodabar, far away from God, or we have been rescued from Lodabar and God has called us to be in his presence. That is true about everybody in the room this morning. We are one of two places. Living in the king's presence, in him, seated at the right hand of the father in heaven because of his great grace and the work that he has done. Or we are still in Lodabar, separated and distant from him. So, we were fallen in sin, we were far from God, and thirdly, the fall placed us under condemnation and being fearful of God. Look at verse 5. The king, then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emiel, at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Don't fear. Why did David say don't fear? What what was the body language of Mephibosheth? Fearful. He was giving away that he's he's in the presence of the king. And what is Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth, I'm going to get it right in a little bit. What is he thinking likely? I'm an heir. He's going to kill me. I've been hiding. It's been a good 20 years of hiding, of, of remaining alive. I've got a son. But now David's going to do me in. It's important to notice this. Mephibosheth's view of the current situation was grounded in his feelings, not facts. He was assuming, because of the way kings did things, that his life was going to be over. That's what he felt. It wasn't factual. David had called him to bring him to do something else upon the life of Mephibosheth. So, I've met many people in my life who have a false view of God and what God wants to do to them in their life and how God wants to relate to them. And because of this, they stay away and they're fearful. They never release their heart to, 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 to roam in freedom in the great grace that God has granted unto people who are in salvation with Him. And when you live that way, you, you are fearful and you remain trying to, to not think about God, not come near, not come to church, not do anything like that. It becomes the response of any sinner who becomes aware of sin and knows about God's holiness. Oh, no, no, God will never accept me. So no way, no way will I believe. And people say all kinds of different things even when God is at work drawing they will fight that but God wins when he draws and he brings people for those who don't know Christ the Savior intellectually you can get to a place where you recognize it is a dangerous thing to stand before a holy God and be in your sin there are people that don't know the Lord who can recognize that And all that awaits those that don't know him is what Hebrews 10.27 says. A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Mephibosheth is incredibly fearful before David. Many people today are fearful before a holy God. That he just wants to throw lightning from heaven. Just wants to be mean. He just wants to do bad things to people. But that's not what the Bible teaches us about God. God draws us, extending divine favor to undeserving sinners. God's grace seeks us where we're at, fallen in sin, far from God, and fearful of Him. So when God begins to draw, what, is, what does grace do? Does God seek out then to bring condemnation? I want to bring you close to me so that I can just condemn you. We love John 3, 16, but you ought to read 17 and 18 too, that God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world. But God's heart is he wants people to come to faith. Mephibosheth's view of himself was he's a crippled outcast from the previous dynasty. Why would David ever have any aspect of kindness to extend to him? And at the end of verse 8, look at the end of verse 8. He paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? The Jews back in the day viewed dogs. They would look at us today and go, What is wrong with you people? Y'all own four dogs and you let them walk around in your house. The Jews consider dogs the nastiest, most vile animals around. And so here's Mephibosheth. Not only am I a dog, but what kind of dog was he? I'm a dead dog. My life, listen Mephibosheth. I'm dead to life, a future, hope. And I'm a dog. That's who I am. He's a man of shame, a man of no worth in his own eyes. This is not some kind of false humility from him. And all the years of hiding from the king, and, and wondering if he ever got find out found out what would happen. And so he just now thinks of himself I have no future. What could have been hopeful? It's all gone. Nothing could ever good happen to my life. I am a dead dog living in Lodabar. And yet as he hears David say this, don't be afraid. I'm going to do three things in your life, Mephibosheth. I'm going to show you kindness. I'm going to restore to you all the land that King Saul owned and that would have been your father's right to have. I'm going to give it to you. And thirdly, you're going to eat at my table for the rest of your life. He's laid out before the king. Face down before David. And in a moment of great humility and vulnerability, perhaps all, perhaps all of the name calling, the lack of affirmation, the loss of family, oh, there's that crippled guy. All of the labels, all of it came flooding over him. What everybody else said and what he assumed everybody else was saying. And he has to be overwhelmed at the words of David and what David is offering him concerning his future. What's David saying? Mephibosheth, I'm going to give you life. And I'm inviting you To be a part of my family. You are going to eat at my table for the rest of your days. No more dead dog language. No more low to bar. No more fear of what I might do to you. You in the morning and at lunch and at night, you will get to sit at my table. We will be in relationship with one another. And you will sit at the table with Absalom and Solomon. And the other kids, you will sit at my table. He must have been amazed by grace. And what David was offering to him. Because here's what grace now did. It sought him where he was, far away. It has brought him to Jerusalem. And now with this David, on the account of Jonathan, extending this love to Mephibosheth, he now gets to live in the presence of the king for the rest of his life. This is what grace does. God seeks out extending divine favor to undeserving sinners. And when the undeserving sinners are awakened and come to faith in Christ, we now live in the presence of King Jesus. And I cannot today communicate anything more powerful And more secure than to say that this morning, that when God's grace comes upon our life, we are saved by Jesus, by his grace. We are in Jesus. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven. We read a while ago from Paul's writings, we are seated where Jesus is. So while I am on the platform at LifePoint Fellowship in Collin County in 2023, physically here, my eternal security is in Jesus who is seated at the right hand of his Father. And there should be more amens at this point. The divine favor of God, so amazing seeks us out in low to bar and invites us to come be before Him, not to be wrathful, but to invite us to be a part of His family. Grace brings us into the King's presence. Three things here briefly. Grace opens the door for us to be accepted by God. So David says to him in verse seven, "Don't fear. I'm going to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Listen, church. Jesus has done the work, and because of our relationship with the Son, he brings he brings us in. We don't bring ourselves. He brings us in and accepts us into the family. Most of Mephibosheth's life was one of rejection." Any hope of a vibrant future that was once his was over with with the death of Saul and Jonathan until an act of grace by David was extended upon Mephibosheth's life. In one magnificent gesture of kindness, David restores to this man everything that his grandfather owned. He doesn't have to live distant in fear anymore. And he gets to eat at the king's table. This kindness is amazing and it changes everything in our lives. And the Father shows us, listen, as David showed kindness to Mephibosheth on behalf of of Jonathan, so the Father shows you and I kindness on account of Christ. And this great love that has come to us. So, one, grace opens the door for us to be accepted by God. Secondly, grace brings us into the fullness of God's blessings. How it must have just, can this be true? Can this be true? Are you still amazed by grace? I am. Wonder wonder what it sounded like to him. He's living out in Lodabar. He's got a son, doesn't even have a house of his own. He's crippled, he's labeled. Can you imagine what it must have sounded like in his ears when David said, I'm going to restore to you everything that King Saul owned. It's going to be yours. All of those blessings, they will be yours. You know what we get? We are heirs with Christ. Everything that Jesus has, because of this divine favor being extended to undeserving sinners, now becomes Ours as well. And this is what happens. He, he would have just heard blessing upon blessing, blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace, grace upon grace. Listen to Romans eight thirty two. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If that's not enough, Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father, Of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In case you think this is just a Paul theme, listen to what Peter said. 2 Peter 1, 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Jesus our Lord. For you see his divine power has granted to us everything. Granted to us everything. Pertaining to life and godliness. And David's not even through blessing Mephibosheth. He gives him a new identity. He gives him a new position. He gives him blessings. He restores his inheritance. And he's going to let him live and be near David for the rest of his life. David could have ignored Mephibosheth. Who would have blamed him? I mean... From a king's perspective, Mephibosheth was not going to offer anything. He couldn't walk, he couldn't fight, probably couldn't stand long enough to cook and do anything. He just probably shuffled around with crutches, but David didn't ignore him. And praise his name right now, God didn't ignore us. He didn't ignore us. And I ask this question, what about the people like Mephibosheth all around us? Some who have broken hearts, others with damaged emotions, crushed spirits, wounded bodies. Others have shattered souls. Many people around us have a lot of physical needs. And do we ignore them like we ignore the ding in our door? We just let it stay there and we don't do anything about it. David didn't do that. God doesn't do that. And I would say to you and I, these kind of people need to matter to us. Third thing about what his grace does, it brings us into direct communion with the king and his children. Four times, four times, in 2 Samuel 9, we are made aware that David got to eat at the king's table. Chapter 9 just keeps reminding us of the invitation and of the reality that he got to eat at his table. You see, David's blessing upon him and God's blessing upon us was, was that he would give us a close relationship, that we would be in relationship with him. To eat at the king's table like this was not a temporary honor. It was like Mephibosheth got a pension For the rest of his life, he knew that every day that this is what would come and what would be his. The castaway knew the wonderful feeling of acceptance. Now, I didn't bring it, but I want you to pretend there's a table here and it's got a tablecloth that's there. This is kind of a Western idea. They most likely didn't have tablecloths that you bought at, you know, a Walmart 3,000 years ago. But I want you to picture a big table in King's Palace. And at nighttime, the daughters of David, the sons of David come in, and they're sitting at the table. And I want you to hear the shuffling of feet with crutches. Of somebody coming and sitting at the table. And when he sits at the table... The tablecloth covers his crippled legs and he looks like everybody else. He looks like a son. And I'm moved by that this morning. Because in the story, guess who Mephibosheth is? Us. We're him. The crippled, separated, labeled, undeserving sinner gets invited to sit at the table. Now I'm not going to have time to finish all this. Gosh, I thought. Oh, I'm, I was hoping I would be able to get to all this. If y'all want to come by my house this afternoon, I'll finish this up. We can sit in my backyard and, and I'll give some more of this. <clears throat> this guy Zeba has to serve Mephibosheth and his Zeba and his sons. Has to serve Mephibosheth after the land is restored to him. He didn't really like it. If you remember, Absalom rebels against David. He's angry that Tamar has been raped by Amnon and Absalom murders Amnon. And and David has to flee Jerusalem and there's all this stuff. Ziba uh, meets David as David's fleeing and lies to David about Mephibosheth. Because David says, where's Mephibosheth? And he's like, oh... He's, he told me that he's decided to stay in Jerusalem hoping to get the throne because it's his. That's what Ziba says. It's not what Mephibosheth did. Zeba told Mephibosheth, I'm going to go get a donkey for you and I'm going to put you on the donkey and we're going to meet David outside the city and we're going to go with David. So at that moment, David acts rashly and says, okay, well, then you can have all of, uh, I'll take all the land from Mephibosheth and Ziba, it's your land. Everything that belonged to Saul, now it's yours. And David's gone for a while and Mephibosheth stays in the city. So in chapter 19, let me just briefly tell the story. Um, David's been gone a while and Absalom's now dead. David's coming back into the city. And Mephibosheth, well, let me read it. This is chapter 19, 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He's coming back into the city. While David was gone, this is what Mephibosheth did. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes the whole time David was gone. This is a picture of what? Mourning. He's mourning that the one, watch this, so powerful. These Old Testament stories have such beauty about God about Jesus the one Mephibosheth loves and has been so gracious to has been gone and he's mourning that he doesn't get to sit at the table with David anymore so he mourns he doesn't take care of his feet he doesn't wash his clothes his beard grows because his heart is broken because his king is not on the throne and he's not at the table. And so while David was gone, Mephibosheth, and this is what grace does. This is the ultimate effect of grace. And this is the application for you and I this morning. Grace should move you and I to faithfully live for Jesus while he's away until he returns. We should live waiting for the king to return. Now, until the king returns, there will be great usurpers of God's throne that will want to destroy the kingdom and and cause havoc. There will be Absaloms that will come along and claim things and do things. And what we do is we long in a world, again, turned upside down. we, We live faithfully. We wait. We fast. We pray, waiting for the king. To return. Now David had told Ziba. All of Saul's stuff is yours now. It's not Mephibosheth's anymore. Verse 25. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king. The king said to him. Why did you not go with me Mephibosheth? And he answered my lord O king. My servant Ziba deceived me. For your servant said to him. I will saddle a donkey for myself. That I may ride on it. And go with the king for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my Lord the king, but my Lord the king is like the angel of God. Listen to Mephibosheth. Do therefore whatever seems good to you. For all of my father's house were but men doomed to death before my Lord the king. But you set your servant among those, listen to Mephibosheth, who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? Here's what Mephibosheth's saying. That's all right that you gave it all to Zeba. It's okay. What I want more than anything else is I'm just glad you're back. And I get to be with you again. You've already given me enough. My whole family was doomed to death because... We're connected to Saul, connected to sin. But by your unmerited favor, you found me in bar, and you brought me back, and you restored everything. And now, yeah, it's been gone, but you've given me enough. Now, this is the take-of-glasses-off emphasis point, so I'm going to do that. I want to encourage every follower of Jesus in the room this morning to be like Mephibosheth. To quit complaining to God that he's not doing enough for you and I. He has done enough. Guess what he'll do though? He'll continue to do more. And Mephibosheth could have said, not fair, David. (laughs) Why didn't you just... Wait, why don't you just, in a moment of rashness, just give away all of my inheritance? He doesn't complain to the king who acted rashly. He did. David acted rashly. God's not like David in that moment, by the way. He's not giving away our inheritance. But Mephibosheth just says, I'm not going to complain about this, that you did that. Why is he not going to complain about that? Here's why. Second Samuel 1930, just again, such a such a beautiful picture. Listen, to, listen to, to Mephibosheth's response. Oh let him, Ziba, take it all. Let him have every bit of Saul's inheritance. Since my Lord the King has come safely home. He didn't want the land. He wanted the person who had returned. Oh Wow. Is that that not so beautiful? And how we should respond to waiting for King Jesus to return? Not being people who complain, but people who are waiting in anticipation for the return of King Jesus. Boy, you could expect Mephibosheth to just be sad about losing the stuff or bitter towards Ziba for being a scoundrel, because he was, or angry for David for making such a quick, rash decision. He didn't care about any of that. He cared about one thing. I care about David's well-being and that David's back in town to be on the throne. This theologian Morgan said this, For his own enrichment, this man cared nothing at all. It was everything to him that his king should come into the possession of his kingdom in peace. It is to be feared that too often we are more concerned about our rights than about his rights, Jesus's. It is great and glorious thing when our loyalty and love make us far more concerned about the victories of our Lord than about our own unquestioned rights. And yet, that should be the normal attitude of everybody who sits at the table of Jesus. I close with this, and I'm serious. If you want to come by my house today, we can talk about this more. Many years ago, a long time ago, Shah Abbas reigned in Persia. He was deeply loved by his people, he was good to them. And to understand them and their needs, he would dress up and he would, this is not Aladdin, okay, but he would mingle among them in various disguises. One day he went as a poor man to the public baths where he sat with a common man who tended the furnace to heat up the water. He talked with him and shared his common food. In the weeks that followed, he returned often, the king did, to the man And the man grew to love the king that he didn't know was the king as a dear friend. Then one day, the Shah decided to reveal his true identity. And the Shah waited, expecting the poor man to ask for some kind of expensive gift. Hey, I know the king now. The king, I'm a poor man. Will you give me something? But the man just stared and gazed in awe. Finally, he spoke up and he said these words You left your palace and your glory to sit with me in this humble place, to partake of my common food, to care about me. On others, you may bestow great riches, but to me, you have given me a great, much greater gift. You have given me yourself. And then he said these words Please, your majesty. Never redraw, never withdraw the priceless gift of your friendship. So, as we finish today, I hope today in this room that you and I know that one of the most anchoring things to our faith is God Himself who acts upon the behalf with His divine favor to undeserving sinners, drawing us in our our low-to-bar place, separated from Him in our sin, bringing us into His presence, saving us, promising us that we'll get to eat at His table forever. So as the world continues to turn upside down, and and it's going to, there is an anchoring thing for our faith that is the love of God. And I hope you tasted it a bit this morning. You've been reminded of the foundation of our life. is not us. It's Him. It's Him. Let's pray.